Uh, I want to thank Dave Zoll for giving me the uh, post-lunch nap slot. Uh, thank you for that, Dave. Uh, I want to thank Jacob Smith for taking the uh, sticker off of my new jeans uh, a little bit ago. That was nice. Uh, and then the, the nice woman from Minnesota who, uh, before lunch, pointed out that I'd gone through most of the morning with my fly down. Um, Right now, I'm really grateful for you. Uh, so anyway, uh, most of you are Episcopalian, which means you're used to sermons that are like seven minutes long. Uh, I don't know how you can sit here and listen to people for this long, so uh, everybody stand up. Like, say hi to someone. Oh gosh, that was a mistake. All right, now sit down. So obedient. Stand up again? No, just kidding. Um, will you uh, pray with me? Heavenly Father, on account of your Son and through your Holy Spirit, help us to rest in your grace. while remaining awake. And all of God's people say. When I was only a few months into my first pastorate, I made the mistake of actually telling the truth. I, I, I actually answered the question from a stranger, so what do you do for a living? I was sitting in an old-fashioned leather and steel barber chair with a bib around my neck and, and hot lather around my ears, and, and actually I'd been nicked, so I was bleeding too. Uh, what do you do for a living, the barber asked. I'm a pastor, I replied naively. Forty-five minutes later, having told me all about the dead wife he was still grieving and the girlfriend she never found out about, the barber wiped his eyes and blew his nose for the final time and stood up from the other leather and steel chair to, to finish cutting my hair. I've shaved my head ever since. <laughs> I, I, I know better now. Plane rides, waiting rooms, my wife's law firm parties. Like George Costanza, I answered that question, so what do you do? I'm a marine biologist. <laughs> but on the train ride up from DC yesterday, thanks to Mockingbird, I didn't have to tell the lady who sat down next to me in the quiet car that I was an architect and, and risk that she somehow possessed more construction knowledge than Simeon Zoll. No. No, thanks to Mockingbird, I could say, me? What do I do? Oh, uh, I'm a writer. And that was that. She didn't say anything else. She didn't need to confess anything to me. She didn't want to, to convince me that we're all on the, the different paths to the same destination or, or how uh, nature is her church. She didn't bludgeon me with a litany of the church's many sins. She just nodded, and she didn't say another word. So thank you, Mockingbird.
Thank you. Not only did you give me the gospel when I could not find it any place else, not only have you gifted me friends I did not know I needed until I received them, you have also provided me with a plausible, socially acceptable alter ego so that I can ride the Acela train without needing to dispense free marriage counseling or apologize for the Russian Orthodox patriarch. Because the truth is, the truth is, a quarter of the way into our third installment of the year 2020, I'm much too weary to do extra work. I'm weary of friends and family members and congregants following the science in opposite directions. I'm weary of, of worrying over, over, over whether the, the most incidental of exchanges with a neighbor will, will infect them or, or incite them. I'm tired of doom scrolling. I'm tired of feeling the need I have to have an opinion on the, the goodness or badness of social media. I'm tired of tiptoeing around social and political and racial and, and sexual issues like I'm walking on eggshells in an alcoholic's home. I'm tired of institutions disappointing us. And I'm tired of leaders so consistently proving the doctrine of original sin. Yeah, but mostly as a pastor, and as a Christian, I'm exhausted from thinking that the future of the church is my responsibility. That it's on me to get the gospel right so that my hearers will get the gospel out. That it's on us to make the world a better place. That it's on us to make history come out right in the end. And as a pastor, too, I am tired of hiding my own family drama and problems from my church so we can just do the next thing. Like Bilbo Baggins, I feel like butter scraped over too much bread. I'm weary. In the midst of life, we have been in death these last two years. From where shall our help come? Whence comes hope for our wither. Oddly, I think we can find hope in a terrifying little story Jesus tells on his way to getting himself crucified. It's part of Jesus' temple tantrum. Jesus, you know the story. Jesus, without the benefit of a seminary education, is in the temple preaching. This place is supposed to be a, a house of prayer, but, but you've turned it into a den of robbers, he screams. And look, with all your tight sphinctered, keeping up appearances, piety, you've pushed all the people with actual biblical problems, the poor, the blind, and the lame, you've pushed them to the margins. And you money changers, you money changers, Jesus says, you call that a fair price for a goat? Pause for laughter. Exactly what part of the commandment, Jesus says, exactly what part of the commandment is unclear to you? I have seen fair prices for animals in airport food courts. Good Lord, toddlers with dirty diapers and, and babies at the breast, Jesus says, could do church better than a lot of you. And just to drive the point home, Jesus offers his listeners a, a sermon illustration. 
Jesus takes a, a, an ordinary, innocent fig tree that, so far as we know, never did anything wrong to Jesus. Jesus takes a, a fig tree, and Jesus gives it the stink eye, and he hollers with his outside voice, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree, the Gospels report, withers all at once. In response to his arboreal assault and battery, Jesus' listeners start in on his bona fides. Just where in the blank does he get off like that, they ask. Did anyone check his references? Who's actually seen his CV? What divinity school did you say he attended? We liked the last preacher we had a lot better than you. No, you didn't either, Jesus replies. Your last preacher was John the Baptist, and you all killed him and served him for dinner. It's not the messenger that's your problem, Jesus says. It's the message. And while they chew on that truth bomb, Jesus, proving he'd never passed the United Methodist Board of Ordained Ministry, Jesus doubles down on their offense, and he, he spins the rudest of all of his parables. Once upon a time, Jesus says, once upon a time, before he bought Twitter to save democracy, Elon Musk bought up some land in Napa because he fancied himself a, a venter one day after he'd cashed out his stock options and retired. When it came time for harvesting the grapes, the, the vineyard owner sent some interns up north with a message, and, and darn it if the fruit pickers didn't beat one, kill another, and, and stone one more. The rich guy, though, he's an odd one. Jesus says, as the parents in the pews all cover their children's shocked and scared ears. The owner of the vineyard, Jesus says, doesn't react the way you might expect. He doesn't call the police. He doesn't cancel them on Twitter. He doesn't talk to Oprah about it. Instead, he, takes, he doesn't even take a, a helicopter up to Napa to take matters into his own hands. No, he, he, he hands over another message and sends another company car full of overachieving interns to the vineyard. But the fruit pickers do the same to them, too. They zip tie them to the grapevines, Jesus says, and, and beat the life out of them. Fool me once, fool me twice. Would you believe this fat cat didn't learn this lesson with these rotten, no-good workers? Seriously, he tells himself, if I give the message to my son, if I send my son up there, surely they'll listen to him. And as soon as they hear the kid's car coming up the gravel drive, the fruit pickers look to each other and say, this AWOL vineyard owner is never going to come around here. If we off his son, we can have this place to ourselves. So they take him across the property line and they kill him. Now, Jesus says to his listeners, what do you reckon this father will do when he learns they've murdered his son in a, a shameful fashion and, and left his body in the brush forsaken like trash? Messenger after messenger what do you guess this father will do after they've killed this ultimate message bearer? Surely he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. They answer so fast, not even one raised their hand. And that's when our Lord smacks his forehead. You mouth-breathing morons, Jesus responds. 
You pick apart your preachers, but you don't know your scripture. It's right there as plain as the ugly on your face. Psalm 118, the stone you all rejected has become the cornerstone of the masterpiece the Lord is building. In other words, in light of what God's determined to do, all our refusals and rejections are only provisional. I've made a decision for Christ. We say, no, God has made a decision for you in Jesus Christ. And sooner or later, by hook or by crook, God's going to pull it off. They warned me about him before my first Sunday at the church. Moving boxes into the parsonage, a a lay leader stopped by with a housewarming gift. Watch out for old Les Norton, Steve said. His his bite is worse than his bark. (laughs) Les, I repeated the name. Well, how bad is his bark? It's like one of those neighborhood dogs that makes you glad you don't keep a gun in the house, he said. You got a picture? How, how will I know him, I asked. Trust me, he'll introduce himself, Steve said. Les was short and bald and wiry, the kind of geezer you picture in a, in a tight white tank top with patches of hair on his shoulders and A1 stains on his tummy. In 14 years, I never learned whether he shouted because of his hearing loss or or his general demeanor. My first Sunday at the church, greeting people in the narthex after I delivered the message, Les refused my outstretched hand, and he crept up close to me, looking me over like a dermatologist. I got absolutely nothing out of your sermon, preacher. (laughs) It hurt a little, being my introductory Sunday and all. But like a good United Methodist pastor, I quickly pivoted into my best mode of non-defensive defensiveness. Bless your heart, I replied. He narrowed his eyes and he sucked at his teeth angrily. Look, I said, there's an unnecessary war going on in Iraq. Maybe the Holy Spirit had better things to do today than speak to you. This isn't going to end well, he said storming off. My third Sunday at the church, after I brought the message, he came up to me as I was getting a cup of coffee. How much are we paying you? (laughs) Suddenly it seems like not nearly enough, I said. (laughs) Why do you ask? Because it's obvious you're not called to be a preacher. You're terrible at it. The only explanation is that you must be in it for the money. He'd wounded me. So I shot back at him. Well, sir, I may be terrible at it, but then again, I've always thought that churches get the preachers they deserve. (laughs) This isn't going to end well for you, he whispered. But because he was deaf, all the eyes near the coffee station were fixed on us. 
One Sunday, I offered a message on Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And during the sermon, I spoke about racism as the refusal to recognize the justifying work of Jesus Christ. Monday morning, less barged into my office, throwing open the door so hard it knocked my portrait of Karl Barth off the wall. <laughs> Just where do you get off getting political in the pulpit? You calling me a racist preacher? Me? No, I said. But isn't it interesting you heard the Lord calling you a racist? I guess there's hope after all. We really do serve a living God, I said. Idols say conveniently quiet, but, but you can't control what a living God might say. This isn't going to, yeah, 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 I know, I said. This isn't going to end well for me. In 2010, the church offered hospitality to a neighborhood mosque undergoing renovations, welcoming them into our youth wing for their Friday prayers. It even got us featured on The Daily Show and interviewed by John Oliver. The Sunday before that first Friday, I delivered a message on Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. You can Google it. In it, I said, Scripture doesn't teach that after we welcome the stranger, the stranger will cease being strange to us or that our differences will be insignificant. Scripture doesn't teach that by loving our enemies, our enemies will cease to be our enemies. Scripture doesn't teach that by visiting the prisoner, we'll convince the prisoner to swear off crime. Scripture doesn't teach that in feeding the hungry, the hungry will show appreciation to us, or that in caring for the needy, we won't find them a burden to us. Rather, in a world of violence and injustice and poverty and loneliness, Jesus has called us to be a people who welcome strangers and love enemies and bring good news to prisoners and feed and clothe the poor and care for those who have no one. Pretty standard sermon, I thought. But if Les had had rocks in the pews, he would have sidearmed a few of me. Instead, he got up literally in the middle of my sermon and he marched out, stopping at every other pew in an attempt to persuade others to follow him. And more than a few did, which stung me. And later that afternoon, Les Norton filled up the church voicemail, my voicemail, the senior pastor's voicemail, litigating the issue. And later that week, he passed around a, a petition in the congregation for the bishop to remove me. And when I saw the signatures on the list, that hurt me too. One Christmas, the message the Lord gave me was from Matthew's nativity, where Jesus is born a, a refugee in a Middle Eastern nation occupied by the military of a foreign empire. Sound familiar? I asked my listeners before I confessed, I'm not sure I like my part in the Christmas story. Les didn't like it either. Christmas is about family and cheer and tradition, he yelled over the brass quintet after the, the benediction. Family, cheer, and tradition, I said. That sounds nice. I like family, cheer, and tradition. I don't know why the Lord didn't say anything about any of those things, but I, I do like them. This isn't going to, yeah, 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 I said. Merry Christmas. One Mother's Day, I brought the message, it's always a bad idea for me to preach on pagan occasions like Mother's Day and the 4th of July. 
I'm an Enneagram 8. So that Mother's Day, I turned to the, what Jesus said on the subject. I, I preached on Luke 14. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, brothers and sisters, cannot be my disciple. <laughs> Jesus just isn't all that concerned about the family, I said. Of course, mothers and fathers love their kids. Their kids look just like them. That's narcissism. That's not discipleship. Jesus is after creating a different kind of family, bound not by blood, but by baptism, I said. I didn't expect anyone, really, to, to like the message, but I certainly did not expect Les Norton to challenge me to a fist fight in the fellowship hall. absolutely true story. You can ask my wife. You can text her now. 540-460-8583. With the whole coffee hour crowd staring at us like you do watching Sarah Condon break bad in an airport gift shop. <laughs> With everyone staring at us, Les poked me in the chest and challenged me to fight him. He then dropped to the floor and did a dozen push-ups <laughs> to prove he was up to the task of making things end badly for me. Before one of my denomination's interminable and expensive arguments on sexuality, I brought up the, the topic in a message, a, a pretty vanilla sermon. Les later harangued me in a church council meeting, attacking me for being too grace-centric and hollering about how my sloppy agape would ruin his grandchildren. <laughs> One of these days, he pointed at me, smiling sarcastically, it's not going to end well. It wasn't until Les's funeral that I discovered that one of his sons had never come out of the closet to him. Now for that idea that Simeon says we shouldn't dwell too much on. In the ancient church, Roman persecution provoked a, an ecclesiastical debate over the efficacy of sacraments performed by preachers who had recanted their faith in the face of torture. Does the, the Eucharist, for example, depend upon the, the preacher's strength of faith or, or moral integrity in order for it to be a means of grace? With St. Augustine, the, the church answered in the negative with the Latin phrase ex opere operato, by the work worked. That is, the sacrament remains effective, an effective means of grace, because it is not the preacher at work in the sacramental work, it is the living word of God. It is the living word of God that is effective and creative, attaching itself to water and wine and bread and the unimpressive, inadequate words of, of a preacher. From his jail cell, the Apostle Paul admonishes Timothy that the only thing a preacher of the gospel has for which to be ashamed is in poorly handling the word of truth. That's it. Tell me in the narthex that the sermon didn't make you feel good or give you practical help for Monday. I won't take offense. Say I, I stepped over the line with a joke or a story that didn't land. Okay. There's always another Sunday. Fire off an email and accuse me of being a liberal or, or a conservative, and I get both every week. Go ahead. It's no sweat. 
I won't give it two seconds worry. I can take the hits. After all, Jesus says he's got a cross that'll fit my back just fine. Gripe until your fingers cramp up. I will sleep just fine. But tell me I haven't handed over the unfettered word of God. Tell me I haven't delivered the message and I should be ashamed of myself, Paul said. God is so unassuming in the world, Karl Barth says, but so revolutionary in relation to it. He means that the way the living God makes himself known in the world, brings something out of nothing, gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist, is through ordinary words. The words of ordinary messengers. From this time forth, I make you hear things, declares the prophet Isaiah. New things, hidden things, which you have not known. Before today, you have never heard them. I don't know why our Lord keeps sending message after message after message to to hard-headed people like us. Nor do I know why he chooses ill-equipped people like me as his mode of communication. Now, that's not even offensive enough. I don't know why God chooses ill-equipped messengers like me as the primary way he is active and found in the world. But I do know that the word of God says that it is the will of God that all shall be saved. That's the epistle to Timothy, for all you want to argue. I do know the word of God says that it is the will of God that all shall be saved. Therefore, all our stubborn and short-sighted no's are bracketed by a much bigger yes, that God is hell-bent on speaking to us in Jesus Christ. That the word is a living word. That the word of God is unfettered and able to work not only in spite of me, but apart from me. That God is hell-bent on being gracious? That gives this weary messenger the hope to go on. Just another real-life mockingbird example, Camel. So I wrote a post for Mockingbird for Good Friday. The powers that be on Facebook tried to fetter God's word. Rejecting my Good Friday post for Mockingbird because of its, quote, shocking and sensational content. And yet, Camel, the next thing. Somehow my vacation video from the following week was not deemed too shocking or sensational. (laughs) Facebook tried to block the word of God, and yet, here we are, streaming this service. So take that, Mark Zuckerberg. Back to Les. I'm not sure when it happened or 
what message it was that, exact, that, that, that finally broke through, but a couple of years before he died, Les Norton came up to me between services one Sunday morning. He'd been keeping an unusually low profile for a while. I gritted my teeth and steeled myself for another tongue lashing. Bless your heart, I was ready to say. He patted me on the shoulder and he said, Preacher, I don't know why it took me so long to hear, but now, some days, the only thing saving me from complete despair is whatever word the Lord's bringing through you. It's a testament to the depth of our sin that we make the the wicked tenets the the subject of Jesus' parable. For for that matter, as Robert Capon points out, we get so preoccupied with the supporting cast that that we misname nearly all of Jesus' stories. The parable of the prodigal son. No, it's not about the the rotten kid's brother. It's about the father who's already forgiven his children before either of them has done an ounce of repenting. The parable of the lost coin. No, it should be called the parable of the crazy lady who is willing to turn over her whole house for a single worthless nickel. The parable of the lost sheep. Nope. It's really a parable about a shepherd who refuses to abide by our expectations for good and responsible shepherding. We're so wrapped up in ourselves, we miss the main character. You know, in Jesus' parable, Jesus credits the vineyard owner with a whopping eight verbs. It's not the vineyard owner who's fooled again and again and again. It's every one of us who think this parable is about the wicked tenants. It's about the owner with a capital O. It's about the ridiculous patience of God and the gracious persistence of his word. Now, Jesus says to his listeners, what do you reckon the father will do when he learns they've killed and forsaken his son? Surely he'll put those wretches to a miserable death, they say. Wrong again. No sooner had we nailed his son to a tree than the Lord sends out another messenger. This Jesus that you crucified and killed, Peter preaches, God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it is impossible for him to be held in death's power. Repent and believe. Ours is a loquacious God. And he's not squeamish. There is no body count the Lord's not willing to rack up in order to be in conversation with you. Which, as grisly as it sounds, is good news. It's the good news that the good news is not your burden to bear alone. We really can rest in his grace because ultimately the gospel is his work not ours. I held less just before he died. God, I'm so thirsty, he said, like Jesus on the cross. Life almost always ends in all too human a fashion. While Les lay in his bed agitated and thirsty, his wife sat in a lazy boy in the adjoining room, the television blaring, watching the John Wayne movie Rio Bravo or or Rio Lobo. I'm not sure which one. They're both the same movie, I think. Paul Zoll can explain the differences. (laughs) 
He was in bed, dying. His wife is watching the John Wayne movie. And knowing that his time was drawing short, he was, he was scared about what came next. What do you think the Lord will do? He panicked. What do you think God will do with me? Haven't you listened to any of the messages I asked? You've been baptized. You're safe in his death. It's going to end well for all of us. Say it again, he said. Say it again. And though I did not want to, though I was exhausted and weary, I felt compelled. Friends, Christ is risen. Ours is a living God whose word can work what it says. For those like me who are dead tired, that's good news and a reason to hope. I offer to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.